0: This is Site 2. Coming up, Ian McWhorter. England could be exiting the EU alone if a continuity bill keeps Scotland and Wales within the single market. Kenny
1: McCaskill. Time to expose the lies behind the clamour for private prisons.
2: The Herald's Opinion. A rethink of every policy is needed to tackle. Poverty.
3: Would Fifty Shades devotees watch if Harvey Weinstein were the producer?
2: New UK security
0: unit to counter fake news announced.
3: Chancellor, Britain and EU will not finalise a trade deal before Brexit vote. SNP plan to punish cybernats with new penalties.
0: Livingston nil, Falkirk 1. Late drama keeps Falkirk on the road to Hampden. Alex McLeish
4: says he is ready to answer Scotland's call after Michael O'Neill snub for SFA.
0: Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 24th of January 2018 Opinion section Ian McWhirter England could be exiting the EU alone if a continuity bill keeps Scotland and Wales within the single market. This article by political editor Ian McWhirter. Brexit, the story so far. Last month, a spanner was thrown into the works when the Irish government and Northern Irish MPs won a guarantee that there would be no hard border in Ireland. This was a blow to Tory MPs hoping for a hard, or clean, Brexit, because the UK government also had to agree that it would remain within full regulatory alignment within the EU Customs Union, to the extent necessary to prevent any such border emerging. Next month, an even bigger spanner may be tossed into the works. That is, if the Scottish and Welsh parliaments, following yesterday's Holyrood debate, pass a continuity bill, ensuring that they too remain effectively in regulatory alignment with the EU, it would be another breakpoint. Indeed, it could mean the end of Brexit as a UK phenomenon, and its replacement with exit, a departure from the EU by England alone. The continuity bill has been dismissed as a Nat stunt, but it was originally proposed not by Nicola Sturgeon, but by the Labour First Minister of Wales, Carwyn Jones. It says, essentially, that a devolved parliament has certain law-making powers and it has the right to pass a law ensuring that those powers will remain in place after the UK leaves the EU. That may seem a tautology, but continuity would mean that all the devolved parliaments, not just Northern Ireland, might remain within the remit of the EU single market to the extent that they are currently subject to its laws. Now, given that Theresa May has insisted all along that she doesn't want to tamper with Holyrood's powers and indeed want to devolve yet more powers to Scotland and Wales, you might wonder why she doesn't just agree to continuity. Indeed, there's some evidence that the UK government had toyed with the idea of giving the Scottish Parliament guarantees that its powers are sacrosanct. It was supposed to come forward with amendments to Clause 11 of the EU Withdrawal Bill earlier this month to guarantee Holyrood's constitutional status quo, but there were problems. The UK government has said all along that it will not accept parts of the UK remaining effectively in the EU after Brexit. Affirming Holyrood's legislative rights doesn't necessarily do that, but it might cause problems down the line. Environmental and agricultural legislation in Scotland is based on EU laws and covers things like GM crops and chlorinated chickens. If these laws were set in stone by continuity, then it might make it impossible for the UK government to negotiate UK-wide trade deals with third parties. Continuity would also mean that Theresa May could not use her so-called Henry VIII powers under the withdrawal bill to pick and choose what powers remain in Scotland after Brexit. She insists that she doesn't want to do that, but few in Holyrood believe her. Indeed, even Scottish Conservative MSPs endorsed a unanimous report from Holyrood's Constitution Committee this month, which said that Clause 11 of the EU Withdrawal Bill was incompatible with dev. It said that it would fundamentally alter the fundamental principle underlying the 1998 Scotland Act, that any powers not specifically reserved to Westminster are devolved. This was also the view of a House of Lords report last year, which said that, as a matter of law, the powers currently exercised by Holyrood should automatically remain there after Brexit and that Westminster had no right to interfere. Now, you'd be forgiven for thinking this is all technical stuff that gets academics and constitutional lawyers very excited but doesn't mean much in the real world. This is exactly what many in the UK government believed about the Irish border issue until December 2017. When Number 10 finally looked at the practicalities, it became clear that a hard border was an unavoidable consequence of taking Northern Ireland out of the EU Customs Union. There would need to be new rules and tariffs, regulations and free movement of people. That's what taking back control means. You couldn't restore a border in the mind and try and pretend that nothing had happened on the ground. As soon as this reality was accepted, the UK further realised they would have to agree to remain in regulatory alignment within the customs union and the single market, at least to the extent necessary to prevent a hard border. And since this alignment would have to apply to the entire UK, it meant the whole question of the UK's departure was reopened. Brexit no longer meant Brexit, but keeping within many of Brussels' rules. The continuity bill could add Scotland and Wales to the Brexit minus equation. Now Westminster is quite within its powers to vote down any such measure. Indeed, the Supreme Court could, according to a legal opinion on the Scottish Parliament's own website, rule it illegal, on much the same ground that it said the Scottish Parliament had no right to veto Article 50. Sovereignty, ultimately, resides with Westminster. However, that ignores the political dimension. Even many Tory MPs might be reluctant to impose legislative consent upon Holyrood. It might be difficult even to frame the motion under which any Scottish Continuity Act would be overturned. Already, Northern Irish DUP MPs have exerted an effective veto on the Brexit process by insisting on regulatory alignment. Many in the Lords would argue that it's unwise to risk breaking up the UK just to prevent Scotland remaining in broadly the same relationship to Europe as Northern Ireland. Moreover, if the UK is, as appears to be the case... Remaining in alignment to the EU single market, how can it refuse to allow Scotland the same right? By imposing its will over Holyrood and Cardiff, Westminster risks confirming Carwin-Jones' claim that Brexit involves a naked power grab and the extinction of devolution. Throughout, the Scottish Secretary David Mundell has affected a world-weary cynicism with the devolution dimension. He thinks it's all just troublemaking by the nationalists. But this was never just an SNP issue, and the trouble hasn't begun yet. This article by political editor Ian McWhorter.
1: Kenny McCaskill, time to expose the lies behind the clamour for private prisons. An article by Kenny McCaskill, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday, the 23rd of January 2018. Weeks before the National Audit Office, NAO, published its report into Private Finance Initiative Stroke Public-Private Partnership, PFI Stroke PPP, I met with an academic friend and a postgraduate researcher. Researching the cost of PFI Stroke PPP in the prison centre service, they wanted to discuss my recollections from my time in office. It was a salutary reminder of the cost of PFI-PPP and the near conspiracy that applied. For a long time, even before the NEO disclosed that PFI-PPP will cost an additional £200 billion in further charges by 2040, even if no new such projects are instigated, I was convinced it was a collective lie in the corridors of power and the corporate boardroom. The public purse was being filched for private profit and in the realm of private prisons you need to consider who the real criminals are. As Woody Guthrie wrote in the Ballad of Pretty Boy Floyd, As through this world I've wandered, I've seen lots of funny men. Some will rob you with a six-gun and some with a fountain pen. As Justice Secretary, I inherited the private prison at Kilmarnock and required to accept the contract already signed for Addywell. However, I was able to roll back the planned PPP construction and operation of Low Moss and retain it as a public sector prison. I am still bitterly disappointed that I couldn't reverse the plans for Addywell, but the penalty clauses signed up to by the Labour-Stroke-Liberal Administration made it impossible. Rolling back low moss was essential, though, as had it proceeded as planned, it would have seen a tipping point reached from which there would have been no escape for the service from falling into private hands around 30% of capacity would have then been in private control with revenue costs such that only limited capital expenditure would have been available for any further state builds. With the perverse incentive to fill private prisons paid for anyway, the state sector would have further crumbled. Reversing that remains something of which I'm proud But it was no easy task, as pressure was brought to bear from senior officials within both the prison service and Justice Department. For them it was, as it had been with Labour ministers before them, the only game in town. It was a new Labour mantra to an old Tory policy, but repeated with gusto by many senior disciples. I accept that I had an ideological opposition to private prisons and in that I wasn't alone. My objections were shared by many not just old lefties like me. The most persuasive argument was made by Clive Fairweather, a former Her Majesty's Inspector of Prisons and a man I very much respected. As a former SAS commander, he explained that when in that role he sometimes required to authorise the taking of life. That, he said, he could only do with the authority of the crown on his cap badge. Prisons were similar, he argued. Taking somebody's liberty could only be done with the authority of the state. But the cost was also fundamental, and that's where the conspiracy entered in. When still in opposition and Adiwell was being planned, another very bright young researcher working with sympathetic academics costed the entire project at more than £1 billion. That was vehemently denied by all and sundry in the corridors of power, although agreed by those in the rank and file who walked the corridors of prisons. Later, as Justice Secretary, I asked the then incumbent Chief Executive of the Scottish Prison Service to do his own sums. The bill he came back with was more than £940 million. That didn't surprise me. What concerned me was the lies I had been told. Not only was the figure repudiated by those then in senior positions, but I was even told I couldn't say that private prisons were more expensive. I was advised that I could state it was an ideological preference, but not that the state model was cheaper. Stand-up fights were required with senior staff to deliver change. Now I accept that running costs and staff costs over the lifetime of a prison need factored in. But even with that, there's still a significant saving as the NAO confirm. Why then was I given that advice? Those who gave it weren't on the take and haven't ended up on the boards of companies which have benefited. They were good people, but their advice was not only flawed, but has proven costly to us all. It can't just be about debt being off the public balance sheet. A few have been enriched and the rest of us left to foot the bill. It was a collective lie entered into by the rich and powerful. Why were we lied to is what needs to be exposed.
2: The Herald, Monday, January 22nd The Herald's Opinion A rethink of every policy is needed to tackle poverty. All this week, in a town high up in the Swiss Alps, the politicians, economists and lobbyists attending the World Economic Forum will be discussing one of the world's greatest problems, the gap between the rich and the poor. The theme of this year's forum is creating a shared future in a fractured world. But, with the wealth of the world's billionaires reportedly rising by 13% between 2006 and 2015, how close is that vision really? To coincide with the forum, Oxfam has just published a report that seeks to expose the extent of the gap and its effects in Scotland. The gap between the rich and the poor is not a faraway crisis, says the charity. It is right here in Scotland, and it is getting worse. Oxfam's report says the top 1% in Scotland own more wealth than the bottom 50% put together. It is a crisis of inequality, says the charity and it is out of control. Naturally, some caution is needed with the statistics. There is still a lot of information missing from the way we try to record wealth. But the grim effects of the poverty gap have been obvious in Scotland for years, as has the UK and Scottish Government's lack of progress in tackling it. Ordinarily, We would expect that when an economy is growing, even slowly, wages would rise too, but the financial crisis of ten years ago, followed by austerity and Brexit, have changed the rules. Not only are wages stagnating, being in a job is not a guarantee of avoiding poverty. In responding to the crisis, the Scottish Government is prone to pointing out that Scotland has the lowest levels of poverty in the UK, and research by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation would appear to bear that out. But what do comparisons to the rest of the UK matter when Scotland's record is so bad? One in five Scots lives in poverty. More than 210,000 children are living in relative poverty, together with 200,000 pensioners. What are we to say to these people? At least your poverty is not as bad as England's. Some positive steps have been taken in Scotland. The establishment of the Poverty and Inequality Commission, for instance, although it is still to be tested. The appointment of Poverty Sar Naomi Eisenstadt was also a step forward, although many of her most important recommendations are nowhere near Being implemented. The promises on poverty are in place, the action less so. Of course, not all the powers needed to take action rest in Scotland, and it is obvious the UK government has no real appetite to act against the rich who dodge tax. But there are so many steps the Scottish government could take but hasn't. Why, for instance, Has it still not properly reformed council tax so that it is genuinely progressive? Why is it continuing to cut college funding when it is colleges that are most likely to help students from poorer backgrounds? And why is it still wedded to the idea of universal benefits when they could be targeted to the poorest in society? There are many other areas where the government has failed to act. It is in schools that many inequalities take root, and yet in Scotland there has been a failure to improve teaching standards across the board, or root out bad teachers. Until schools are better at allowing every pupil to flourish, poor performance in class will continue, which leads to poor qualifications and low-paid jobs and so the cycle continues. Ultimately, action on poverty also means putting the issue at the heart of government. If governments considered the impact on the poor of everything they did, not only would many policies be different, we might see some progress in reducing the gap between the richest and the poorest. The politicians and wonks in Davos We'll spend this week talking about how to create a shared future. It can begin by every government looking at every policy and asking, how does this affect the worst off? And those are the views of the Herald. This
3: article from the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 25th of January. Opinion. Would Fifty Shades devotees watch if Harvey Weinstein were the producer? This article by Brian Beacom, Senior Features Writer. More than 35 million pairs of excited peepers have already watched a teaser for upcoming Fifty Shades Freed, the third in the series of films in which the female lead has been clamped, cuffed, roped, cable-tied, duct-taped, slapped, whipped, spanked, gagged and plugged. When the Brook franchise kicked off, the complaints featured around it being Metaphor-confused, plot-lacking nonsense for the erotically malnourished. But now it's time to look at what women across the world, 436 million, plumped down on cinema seats for the first outing are watching. Two hours of systematic psychological and physical abuse. And we have to ask, what signals is this sending out to men? Meanwhile, at the National Television Awards, Suranne Jones won the Drama Performance Award for her teary-eyed role in confused relationship drama, Dr Foster, a character who has sex with her businessman ex, even though he smashed her head through a plate glass window. All this in the age of Weinstein. There's no doubt fans of Fifty Shades and all will argue it's fantasy. They may even make the point that successful fiction has long featured abused women at the hands of powerful men, from Jane Austen's Mr Darcy, who destroys Elizabeth Bennet for 400 pages, or Ibsen's Hedda Gabler, the role every actress on the planet wants to play. A woman objectified by three men, whom she still flirts with, and there's Samuel Richardson's Pamela, the upstairs-downstairs tale of the toff, whose courtship of the eponymous heroine features attempted rape and slavery, but after a sound ravishing, she marries him. Yet while these stories are products of their time, we're still pursuing the same theme, young, vulnerable woman being pursued by a hugely powerful man lured into a world of promise, Weinstein, and whether in real life or fiction even the female eventually consents does this remove the psychological damage created to reach this point? Catherine Blakeman of the US National Centre on Sexual Exploitation argues for storylines of domination to be booted hard in the development strategies. It is incredibly socially irresponsible to uphold Fifty Shades as mainstream entertainment while at the same time we express our outrage at Harvey Weinstein and his ilk and while we work to eradicate sexual harassment, sexual assault and the rape myth mentality from our culture. Blakeman's comment begs other questions. Would Fifty Shades devotees consider watching the S&M adventures of, of Christian and Anna if Harvey Weinstein were the producer? And what are men to make of women's appetite for entertainment in which female characters are debased? Some feminists argue it's wrong for a man to place an unsolicited hand on a woman's shoulder, touch a knee, and you could be soon reading a solicitor's letter, or worse. So what are the rules? If a man chats up a woman in a bar, should he be declared a sex pest by the court of social media the next day? Back in student days, I boarded a London-bound bus one afternoon and the only person at the very back was an attractive female of the same age. Now I could have sat on any of the empty 50 seats around her but instead I approached her and asked in cheeky, hopeful voice is this seat taken? She laughed and it was the beginning of a relationship but would a male student these days view this as a risky strategy? Probably. It's understandable and right the battle for equality should rage that hostesses should complain if they're groped at a black tie event and me too screams out that women now have a voice but what if the voice gets it wrong if sex pest robert burns lovers were alive today for example would they be posting hashtag happy too thankfully there are signs that siren voices which should suggest that all young men are rapists in waiting is being con- contained by common sense the actress sony wanamaker said this week men are being witch hunted like her director Father Sam was, by McCarthyism. Claire Foy declared she was not offended that Adam Sandler had touched her knee twice on The Graham Norton Show, and Kirsty Alsop found it ridiculous that a TV production company issued an edict that no one should call each other Darling. If this was introduced in a the theatre, world actors would be at a loss for words. But if the strong feminist argument is against patriarchy and power and control why do some women buy into these fictional representation it's ironic that women progress since richardson's pamela days In sexual freedom sorry in sexual freedom and social equality has manifested itself in a desire by some at least to see themselves gagged and slapped on screen it's frustrating that while men are now regularly lambasted for locker room talk just listen to an audience during Fifty Shades or its theatre, Parody. Fifty Shades only serves to whip up confusion in the male mind. So help us out, ladies. Ignore the film and its message. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's thrash out the terms of engagement, but where there's no pain involved.
0: The Herald Scotland on Wednesday the 24th of January 2018 Politics Section New UK security unit to counter fake news announced This article by Michael Settle The UK government is to create a new unit to counter disinformation and fake news by foreign powers such as Russia as ministers launched a fresh review of Britain's defence capabilities, The move came as the National Security Council, chaired by Theresa May, agreed the main findings of a cross-Whitehall review of national security capabilities. The Prime Minister's spokesman said the new National Security Communications Unit would build on existing capabilities and would be tasked with combating disinformation by state actors and others. It will more systematically deter our adversaries and help us deliver on our national security priorities, the spokesman explained." He said the decision to mount a new Defence Review to be carried out by the Ministry of Defence reflected the need to deliver better military capability in a sustainable and affordable way. The move to spin off the Defence Element from the main National Security Capability Review, NSCR, being conducted by the National Security Advisor Sir Mark Sedwell, will be seen as a partial victory for Gavin Williamson, the Defence Secretary, who has been resisting pressure to make further defence cuts. Under Sir Mark's plans, which are supposed to be fiscally neutral, defence chiefs had drawn up a series of proposals for swinging reductions, including a cutting back the size of the army and scrapping the Royal Navy's two amphibious assault ships. Experts say the cuts are needed, as ministers failed to properly fund the last strategic defence and security review in 2015. The announcement of the new review comes after the head of the army, General Sir Nick Carter, warned Britain's ability to counter threats to national security would be eroded if it failed to keep up with potential aggressors, like Russia. Mr May's spokesman refused to be drawn whether it would mean more resources for the military, pointing out the government was already committed to increasing the defence budget by 0.5% over and above inflation year on year. The defence element of the NSCR has shown that further work is needed in order to modernise defence, to deliver better military capability and value for money in a sustainable and affordable way in accordance with the national security objective, the spokesman said. The defence programme is about ensuring the defence processes and capabilities that we have meet the challenges and threats we face. I'm not going to preempt that work. Julian Lewis, who chairs the Commons Defence Committee, welcomed the decision to take the defence element of the review back inside the MOD. If he means that defence reviews are now once more being carried out by the MOD, and this is a welcome victory for the new Defence Secretary, he declared. We cannot have a situation where unaccountable civil servants rather than ministers have executive power over the shape and size of our armed forces. However, the more fundamental issue is the inadequacy of the defence budget, at barely 2% of GDP, which is not enough even to meet ongoing threats previously identified, let alone the new and intensified threats which led to the security and capability review in the first place, he added. Admiral Lord West of Spithead, the former head of the Royal Navy, said the government appeared to be playing for time in the face of heavy criticism over the proposed cuts. This reflects there's a realisation there's a real problem in defence, and they're desperately trying to find time to see what they can do. It's a way of gaining time, he claimed. Nia Griffith for Labour said, The decision to hold a separate defence review cannot simply be an excuse to kick the difficult decisions facing the defence budget into the long grass. The true test of any defence review will be whether it delivers real investment in our nation's defences and the resources that our armed forces so badly need. The Shadow Defence Secretary added, you cannot do security on the cheap, and it's high time that the government recognised this. This article was by Michael Settle.
3: This article from the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 25th of January. Politics. Chancellor... Britain and EU will not finalise a trade deal before Brexit vote Chancellor Philip Hammond has suggested Britain and the European Union will not finalise proposals for a trade deal before MPs vote on the Brexit withdrawal agreement. His comments appear to put him at odds with Theresa May who has said the UK can can complete negotiating a free trade deal with the EU before Brexit day on March ninth, 2019, at which time a separate withdrawal and transition agreement is expected to be in place. MPs won the right to have a meaningful vote on the withdrawal agreement after Tory Brexit rebels inflicted a defeat on the Government last month. But Mr Hammond's admission that MPs are unlikely to know the proposed details of the future UK-EU relationship has led to accusations they will be voting with their eyes closed. While the Prime Minister has insisted the UK can finalise the future relationship in time for exit day, EU Chief Negotiator Michael Barney has indicated he he was working towards reaching a simply uh, political agreement by October 2018, which would fall some way short of a full trade deal, Mr. Hammond's comments appear to be in line with Mr. Barney's view that a full trade deal is more likely to be signed during a post brexit transition period of around two years, as to if he expected the details of the future relationship to be laid out in full time by the time to be laid out in full by the time Parliament votes on the withdrawal deal. The Chancellor told Bloomberg TV, probably not the full details, but we would expect the high level shape of the future relationship to be emerging by that time. Mr Hammond also stressed Britain would reject any trade deal, which did not include financial services, although he revealed the government was no longer seeking to maintain passporting rights for city firms. Mr Barney last month insisted that there was no place for financial services in the kind of free trade agreement which is likely to be available to the UK. But the Chancellor told a panel discussion in Davos, those who casually suggest that financial services want to be part of a deal aren't looking at the numbers. Services and financial services have to be part of the deal. We run a 100 billion trade in goods deficit with the EU, only partially offset by a £40 billion trade in services surplus. The only only deal that can ever get done is one which is fair to both parties, and a deal which included goods, but didn't include services, could never be fair, could never be attractive to the UK. He told Bloomberg the UK was looking at enhanced regulatory equivalence to keep trade flowing freely rather than passporting, but said it has to be under a regime that is not dependent on the whim of the EU. Mr Hammond also rejected demands from the CBI for Britain to stay in the customs union. We won't be able to stay in the EU customs union because we won't be members of the European Union, he said. But making sure that goods can flow with low friction across the border between the UK and the EU is very important to both sides, so I'm sure we will want to form a close customs agreement with the European Union to make sure that happens. Green Party co-leader Caroline Lucas said, on behalf of the best for Britain anti-Brexit campaign, the Chancellor has let the cat out of the bag with these comments. He wants MPs to vote with their eyes closed on the final deal and to ignore the serious damage Brexit will do. She added, MPs need to be able to vote with the full facts in front of them. Anything else would be utterly unacceptable. This article from the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 25th of January. Politics. SNP plan to punish cybernuts with new penalties. This is an exclusive article by Tom Gordon, Scottish political editor. The SNP has proposed punishing so-called cybernats and other poorly behaved activists activists with its own version of fast-track penalties. A review of the party's constitution suggests using sanctions akin to fiscal fines to bar rowdy members from meetings and block access to social media accounts. It also proposes scaling down SNP conferences as the membership surge after the 2014 referendum means only two venues in Scotland are big enough to hold them. The review also points to a problem with institutional sexism with 73% of branch conveners male and 57% of branch secretaries female. This suggests some stereotyping of roles may operate. It says, noting some branches have failed to appoint women's officers, despite the post being mandatory. It asks for ideas on how to improve gender balance. The proposals were issued to party branches for consultation last week, with responses due to become firm proposals at conference in June. The SNP last overhauled its constitution in 2004. In the introduction, business convener Derek Mackay said that 120,000 strong membership and 2,015 general election wins had transformed the party. Without offering a date, he said they also set the scene for the next few years of party campaigning through to when we can next put the independence question to the test. The review offers a series of ideas to improve member conduct, noting the recent general focus on bullying, sexual harassment and inappropriate behaviour within parties. The SNP has long been accused of turning a blind eye to so-called cybernats, activists who taunt and abuse unionist opponents online. The review asks if there should be a separate code of conduct for a social media use. It says a problem in enforcing order is that misconduct complaints can only be handled by a formal hearing of the party's disciplinary committee, which can only impose three sanctions – censure, suspension or expulsion. The reviews suggest a range of flexible low-level penalties should also be available with some sanctions agreed by consent rather than through a hearing. If a member had caused an inappropriate tweet to be issued from a branch account – They could be barred from accessing the account for a period, it says. If someone was disruptive at a meeting, they could be banned from attending meetings of the party for a set period. Members could simply be asked to make an apology for conduct. This could be similar to the system of fiscal fines operated in Scotland when a minor offence is admitted. If the penalty is taken, there will be no need to convene the committee. The system could be administered on behalf of the party by a standards fiscal. Tory MSP, Morris Golden, said The time for the SNP to get tough on cybernats is long overdue. It appears the party is finally admitting it has a problem with this kind of thing. If invoked, some of its more experienced MPs may be among the first to be sanctioned.
0: Remember you no longer need to receive a weekly digest service on tape, but can in fact listen to more daily content online via www.qandreview.com slash free podcasts, accessible on your computer or mobile device. The Herald Scotland, on Wednesday the 24th of January 2018. Sports section. Livingston nil, Falkirk 1. Late drama keeps Falkirk on the road to Hamden. This article by golf correspondent Nick Roger. Originally published on Tuesday the twenty third of january twenty eighteen. The road to Hamden is long and arduous. It's just about as exacting as trying to negotiate the runabouts, roadworks, and rigmarole of getting to the Tony Macaroni Arena in the dark. In the end it was Falkirk who continued rumbling along on the route to the National Stadium. They left it late, mind you. Regan Tumulty's last gasp winner, with the aid of a deflection off Alan Lithgow, provided a dramatic finale to proceedings. Next up is a long trek north to face either Cove Rangers on Formantine United. This road to Hand and Lark can clock up the miles. This was just about getting through, said Falkirk manager Paul Hartley. It was a tough night, but we coped well, and we found that bit of quality in the dying seconds. The notable subplot to affairs was the presence of Lee Miller, the long-serving Falkirk player who left his boyhood club last week and signed on at Livingston. I've been booed off the park a few times in my career. In fact, I've been booed onto the park a few times too, he had said cheerily when asked what kind of reception he would receive from the Falkirk fans. That would have to wait, as Miller was named as one of the substitutes, but he was, unsurprisingly, given a warm welcome from both ends when he eventually appeared just after the hour. Prior to that, it was the hosts who made a sprightly start, and signalled their intent in the opening couple of minutes when Lithgow's header was cleared off the line. After that initial scare, Falkirk, who first won this cherished old clump of silverware 105 years ago in 1913, swiftly established a foothold and began to make one or two menacing thrusts and nimble darts. On 23 minutes, Andrew Nelson nipped in at the back post, only for his volley to trundle wide. Moments later, a corner from the left caused quite a palaver in the Livingston rear guard, and, amid the general flapping, Nelson's overhead effort was grasped by Neil Alexander. It was a keenly contested tussle, even if chances were few and far between. Falkirk's lively, considered and tidy probings led to them getting into some handy positions, but they couldn't deliver the telling blow. Despite all these manoeuvres, it was a stationary situation which almost led to a Falkirk breakthrough. Jordan McGee's curling free kick from the edge of the box whistled into the side netting, and, for a brief moment, had the Falkirk supporters cheering an opener. It was close, but not that close, and their Livingston counterparts at the other end of the stadium hissed their derision with withering bellows. Livingston were quickly on the offensive after the resumption, and Jackson Longridge's cross across the face of the goal had to be scrambled clear. From the corner, Declan Gallagher plonked a well-hit volley just over. At the other end, Falkirk should really have been ahead when Nelson seized on Alexander's dicey clearance and bounded into the box, but he could only blast a shot wildly over the bar with the goal at his mercy. Things started to get quite meaty as the clock ticked down, and Tom Tywo succumbed to the physical element when he was clattered by Longridge and was stretchered away. Both sides battled away, but just as it seemed they had ran out of ideas, tumulty popped up in stoppage time to poke in the winner from a low cross. This article was by golf correspondent Nick Roger.
4: Article from Herald Scotland, 23rd of January 2018. Sport. Alex McLeish says he is ready to answer Scotland's call after Michael O'Neill's snub for SFA. Exclusive by Graham McGarry. Former Scotland and Rangers manager Alex McLeish has told the Scottish Football Association that he is ready and willing to take on the job as manager of the national team once again after their first choice target, Michael O'Neill, knocked back the position yesterday. O'Neill held talks with an SFA delegation in a three-hour meeting in Edinburgh last Thursday after they had agreed a compensation package with his current employers, the Irish Football Association. However, the Northern Irishman has now opted to remain with his native country. SFA Chief Executive Stuart Reagan will now be forced to go back to a short list of other suitable candidates, with MacLeish hoping that his name is at the top of that list. And the 59-year-old, who managed Scotland previously in 27, before leaving for Birmingham City, isn't put off by knowing he wasn't first choice for the role. The Scotland job still interests me," McLeish told Herald Sport. "I know that Michael O'Neill was the favourite, of course, but it wouldn't be the first time that I've got a job on the rebound. When I went to Hibbs, for instance, Rod Petrie fancied Paul Sturrock, and the rest is history. But if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. I'm more than open to the possibility, so we will see." McLeish took charge of Scotland 11 years ago next week after Walter Smith had left the post in the middle of the qualifying campaign for Euro 28 to take over at Rangers. He stayed in the post for 11 months, steering Scotland to their famous win over France at the Parc des Princes and achieving the highest win percentage, at 70%, of any Scotland manager to have taken charge of more than 10 games. That record Still wasn't enough to secure qualification for the European Championships, though, with a damaging defeat in Georgia and a controversial loss to Italy in the final qualifier at Hamden, ending the Scots' hope of making it to Austria and Switzerland. McLeish thinks, though, that his experience, not only from his first spell in charge, but also in his management career at club level since, makes him an obvious candidate for the role. And now, at 59, he feels that he is the ideal age to assume the role once more. Managers like myself, Walter Smith, all these guys, we know what it's all about in terms of experience, he said. I've done a lot of firefighting and I don't want to go back to a job like that. It may be that you become typecast, but my CV isn't too shabby. I've had five years in England, won a promotion, a Carling Cup, had a ninth position in the Premier League, "'saved Aston Villa despite reducing £30 million in wages, "'so I think my CV stands up, and I've still got a lot to offer. "'The Scotland job is definitely of interest to me.'" Former Scotland Assistant Manager Mark McGee has backed his former Aberdeen teammate for the role, saying he would be the ideal candidate. "'I know how much Alex would love to do the job, "'and I know how well-qualified Alex is for the job, "'given his experience in it already,' said McGee. I don't see any reason why he couldn't be seriously considered. He is ready and waiting. Have boots, will travel. O'Neill released a statement after turning down the role to explain his decision, saying, It's a huge honour to be offered the position. However, I do not feel that this is the right opportunity for me at this moment
0: in my career. Thank you for listening to this week's Digest edition of the Herald Scotland. Remember, you can contact us via email at information at qnreview.com, or via leaving a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976. Please remember to return the cassette in the wallet provided. Just flip over the address label and post it. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Qn Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Qn Review, and the producer was J Kidd. Qn Review is a Scottish charity. Number SCO one eight O one six Our registered office is at eighteen Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G six four one QY.